Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined by my colleague and Bang to Rights regular, Dave Porter. Hello, Dave. Hi, Pete. And also by one of our colleagues, Don Bryan. Hi, Don. Welcome Hello to there. Bang to Rights. Good Hi. to have you on. We're going to spend some time this week looking at a job which even the most experienced journalists often dread, what are called death knocks in the trade. It's when you're asked to contact someone for comment just after they've lost a family member or a close friend, sometimes, actually often, in tragic or shocking circumstances. Now, Jan Disley has decades of experience as a reporter in London and in Manchester, and she's been speaking to our students about how to approach bereaved families. We'll also be looking at what the release of financial figures from Reach PLC and News Group tell us about the fortunes and fate of the Daily Mirror, the MEN and the Sun. But first, Dave, what's caught your eye in the, in the news this week? Um, I suppose the, the financial payout that's going to happen to uh, the beautician who was libelled by uh, Mail Online, Daily Mail, and um, she, there was, she was being portrayed as a rogue beautician who was, I think the headline was, you'll have so many lines you'll end up looking like uh, Gordon Ramsay. And it's this idea that, you know, cosmet cosmetics, rogue beauticians and Corner Street uh, beauty shops are offering treatments that are, you know, potentially resulting in people having botched, semi-botched faces. And so this this woman, um, I think, I can't remember her name actually, but anyway, sorry, she built up a business from scratch, you know, a thriving uh, beautician's business, had a one-year-old son, a uh, young son, and then the male article appeared out from nowhere and effectively ruined her business. She sacked, you know, slid into depression, uh, her health worsened, and uh, she quite valiantly took on the might of uh, the male on her own. Obviously had a, um, she had a, a barrister who took it on a no win, no fee basis. And uh, it's just this week celebrating her, you know, one woman's fight against the, uh, there was an ipso adjudication against this. Um, the male never turned up in court apparently. There was um, a, a correction stroke apology, sorry, which was directed by the episode, which was on page two, but then was jumped, pushed back to page eight. Um, interestingly, if you go online now, the article is prefaced by sort of six or seven paragraphs of uh, apologies to, to the lady saying we were completely wrong, there's no foundation for these uh, libelous allegations. Um, it's just good to see actually that, you know, um, we often talk in class about how libel is a playground of the rich and famous. Yeah, yeah. And actually small people can often be ruined by media organisations, but actually can fight back. Uh, and, you know, on Twitter this week she was saying, I told you I'd do it, it's taken a long time, but I, I thought that I thought the male won. Yeah. So, uh, well done to her. Yeah, interesting case, interesting case. We'll come back to some more damages in just a moment, but uh, um, those those figures I mentioned uh, from Rupert Murdoch's news group and uh, certainly make some interesting reading. The Sun and the Sun and Sunday publishers ran a turnover last year of just under £220 million. That's up 5% on the previous year. But what really caught people's eye was this 26 £0.7 million in damages and legal fees to settle a series of legal claims over hacked voicemails. High-profile celebrities like uh, Liz Hurley, Heather Mills, Elton John. Over at Times newspapers, the broadcaster's pre-tax profits were down 60% on last year. Now, Press Gazette pointed out that news group executives are campaigning for zero VAT on the digital editions of the papers because their subscription base is continuing to grow, but they're currently losing £9 million a year to the Treasury in VAT on the income from the digital subscribers. Dave, how, does, how do you think this is going to balance out? It's a fight that the Times is going to try and take on with the Treasury to get 
to get VAT removed from the digital edition of newspapers. I mean, they have probably quite a strong logical argument, really, don't strong they? Strong logical argument, but I suppose in some ways, you know, think of the history of newspapers and the vast profits that they've generated over the years. They were slow to adapt to emerging technology. I mean, um, some, I suspect some in government may, may think, we've had it good, so good for so long, why should suddenly we bend over to help you, um, considering what's happened with Leveson, and you know the very hostile nature of the press. I mean, if you look at the the press gazette figures, they are eye-watering actually. You know, circulation, print circulation, in newspapers are down by two thirds over twenty years. Um, if you look at right, Sunday People, has had a ninety percent drop off twenty years. The Guardian down from um, four hundred thousand to one hundred thirty-two thousand. The Mail from two point three million to one point six. Mirror two million to three hundred sixty-seven thousand. These kind of precipitous falls in circulation, and you're not going to recoup any of that by online advertising in any way, shape, or form. So obviously the push for zero. And th those figures are, I guess, what's behind the Times and the other newspapers yeah. saying, well, if you take uh, as showing the government's commitment to uh, public service journalism, course, yeah. you've got to take VAT off so that yeah. we can recoup some of that money from lost argument. paper revenues. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah I, obviously the current costs, uh, they, they haven't followed for another recommendations. But there is a, a recommendation, not a recommendation, there is a realisation within government that actually the press and particularly print have a strong role to play in, as you say, accountability, yeah. local democracy, yeah. and therefore a special case. Yeah, I understand, actually we'll probably come back to this in a couple of weeks' time, I understand the House of Lords is going to be looking at some of this stuff, the House of Lords Digital Committee, mm -hmm. looking at some of this stuff, and, and training, how journalists' training can respond to, yeah. to this crisis, which will be very interesting from our point of view. But all this comes at a time when the uh, news group is also poised to launch a whole new radio station, with questions remaining about how many people it might poach from the BBC, and that comes in the context of a wider debate over the future of BBC radio and TV, what might be happening to the to the licence fee. Now, there's been some, I will emphasise, some relief for the BBC and public service broadcasters this morning, recording on Thursday this week. This morning, with the publication of a re review by Ofcom of the last five years of public service broadcasting sector. That includes the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, as well as the Scottish and Welsh broadcasters, STV and S4C. Now, Ofcom found, once again, that investment by those channels continues to form the bulk of revenues for the whole of TV production sector in the UK. However, they also say that new on-demand output from the public service broadcasters still hasn't caught up with the hemorrhage of live broadcast viewers and listeners. Now, television remains the best way to reach large audiences, the report says, and broadcast news is still widely considered to be accurate and trustworthy. Now, I'll put a link to the report in today's show notes, but apart from some footnote recommendations about keeping public service broadcast channels visible on subscription channels, there's nothing at all in the report about the future of the licence fee, which Ofcom says it will address later in the summer. Now, Don, in all of that context, mm -hmm. the, the licence fee, the erosion of listeners and viewers to live TV and Absolutely. live radio, if we go back one step to the Times radio station, what, where does that fit into all of this, do you think? It's a very interesting development, and I think, as you said, they're starting to poach um, BBC people um, to the new station. But if we look historically at what's happened um, when newspapers 
uh, and other news organisations have launched uh, radio stations. For example, uh, back in 2007, I think it was, um, Channel 4 um, launched, started to launch um, a radio station of their own. Obviously, they have a wealth of experience at Channel 4. They have uh, great broadcasters. They have great journalists there. It would seem the obvious um, thing to do is to launch um, a radio station. Um, and it lasted until 2008, subscription only. Um, what happened there, I'm not entirely sure, but obviously wasn't sustainable given all the support and expertise they had there. Um, obviously, places like The Guardian now do put quite a lot of effort and a lot of money into their podcast and their audio and their video online. Um, and I think with The Times, it's really interesting to see what they're doing. It sounds like a great idea, but as we know, um, high-quality audio, radio, however the platform is, costs a lot of money and a lot of effort. And um, just getting someone like John Pina, very experienced, very good journalist. Um, also, the, one of the people who are involved in the launch is um, someone uh, that we know from Media City, Tim Laval, a very, very highly experienced journalist uh, who's helping to launch it. So obviously, they have some very good people behind it. But is whether this kind of radio station is sustainable um, is another matter. As, as I said, it uh, costs a lot of money um, to take these forward. Um, also, some, of, some of the commentary mm. we've seen is, is that this is a, it'll be a, a bit of a, a, a shop front really to try and steer people into, in behind the Times firewall and to kind of try build up the kind of digital mm. subscriptions that we were just talking about, Dave. Um, but the other, I guess one of the other points is that, you know, the, the, the Guardian and the Telegraph and some of the others who've done well in the podcast sector have a range of content, don't they? So, and, and the New York Times, for example, for a long, they've got, they do recipes, they do literature, they do music reviews as well as news and Absolutely. current affairs and yeah. so that it looks like that might be the winning recipe not mm. just to do news and current affairs yeah who who listens wants to listen to just news and current affairs you know even the most avid uh, news junkie mm. wants a bit of depth a bit of variety as you say um, the ones that have done really well have had a really broad range of um, output and yes it might be the shop front but you know if you want people to engage you need them to carry on listening not just see it as a way into um reading what's what's in the paper yeah so i think the full radio station is is due to go online later on in the year but they're having some kind of spring launch uh -huh. i think so we'll we'll wait with interest to see what happens with Absolutely. that i mean that obviously coincides with the bbc going very very big on bbc sounds yes and the bbc sounds operation moving to here to manchester yeah. what what's what's your take on on that don i think it's part of this you know, wider um, thing that the BBC has been engaged with for the last 10, 15 years to be seen to be out of London, obviously, to engage with not just Northern voices, but voices ac across uh, the UK, perhaps to try and engage much younger um, audiences. Podcasting is huge amongst young people mm. and to tap into that as well. And obviously there is a commitment uh, from the BBC to take more and more um, of their programme making outside of London, um, you know, as uh, Channel 4 are with in, in Leeds as well, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, thanks. A reminder, you're listening to Bang to Rights from the Journalism Department here at Manchester Metropolitan Uni. And remember, you can contact us on Twitter at RightsBang if you've got a comment on, on this or on what, or if you want to ask us any questions about the topics we're covering in the podcast today. More now on those daunting dates when you're told by your editor that you need to go and find the family of someone who's just died to get some comments from them about that person, whether it's a fatal car accident or a drugs overdose or the victim of a terrorism attack. It's never an easy job. Jan Disley has decades of experience at making these visits from the Chester Observer and Sheffield Star to working as a specialist aviation journalist and at the Mirror, the Express and many, many others. Jan Disley told me that when you do your research and approach the task and the family with respect, it can be a job that unlocks one story and can often lead on to unlocking something much, much bigger. I always remember my first death knock, as we call them, um, when I was about 21, only been in the job a few months and um, wanted to crash my car on the way to the job, thinking, how on earth am I going to do this? Um, and I knocked on the door and the chap answered in his dressing gown and said, oh, I can't even think of talking to anyone at the moment, but come back in an hour. So I went for coffee and came back in an hour and he let me in. And we sat there with his daughter um, and went through the family album and they told me lovely stories about his son and her brother. And, um, and they said halfway through, you know, one of the things that's really bothering us is the inquest. We don't know what to expect. And I said, oh, I, I've been to an inquest. I can tell you what to expect. And I did. And then at the inquest, we met for coffee beforehand. And, and they said to me, actually, the whole experience had been very positive for them. And it was for me, too. And um, I do often think back to that as a, when I'm today going on a death knock, which I still don't enjoy doing. Um, and the other, the other occasion was a few months in when um, a chap in his 30s was really tragically killed in a road accident. And uh, neighbours of his father rang the paper and said, please don't bother this guy's father. He's elderly, he's in his 80s. Um, he doesn't want the press turning up on his doorstep. And we didn't go. And the following day, he rang the paper and said, is my son not important enough for you to come and talk to me about him? And that was another lesson that was quite useful. And, um, yeah, I mean, people are very critical and think that the press are being intrusive and um, uh, shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. But actually, it's a service. It's a, and also, it's history. You know, families going looking back on um, uh, tributes to relatives um, in the future will be pleased that that happened. Quite often you find that the family, they, they want to be quite effusive. They, will have, they sometimes have quite a lot of stories. And as part of that respectful approach towards the story, you have to not edit that out. You have to try, but you can't give the complete picture of this person's life and you can't take every verbatim quote from the mother or the father tells you. How, how do you approach that side of it, writing up a story like that? I think you have a, a big responsibility to people who talk to you about such traumatic events in their life. Um, 
No, obviously you can't write 18,000 words. Um, so I think you have to um, look at what they've told you and decide what you think gives the fairest, most rounded picture um, and keep in as much as you can of um, what you get the sense of is the most important bit, really. Um, and obviously, it's not just your decision. I mean, you, as you know, when you're writing something, you might write 500 words, but it might end up only 200 when it appears in the paper. Um, sadly, you haven't got any control over that. Um, but you, you just have to hope that you um, do as good a job as you can and that the, um, uh, the subs and the uh, editor support you in it, really. Now, one of the reasons we, I mentioned we, we spoke before we started recording about Lockerbie, and one of the reasons I brought that up was because you've, you've been involved in stories like that, uh, like you were directly involved in, in Lockerbie doing the airline side of it. You've also covered the, the Dunblane shootings in 1996 and, and um, the, the Harold Shipman story in, in Manchester in the, in the, what was that, the early 90s, mm -hmm. um, where you would have to approach a large number of families about essentially the same issue how, how did you kind of approach that did you take a different attitude towards that or did you look at each individual case on its own well the shipment case was really interesting on mm. that because um obviously he was he was charged with the murders of 15 women however um all those families had been told by the police not to talk to the press so um, it quickly became apparent that the only way in was for us to find relatives of people who were also believed to be victims. And the only way to do that was to go to the local library, go through obituary columns, um, and find um, women, middle-aged to elderly, who had died at home, suddenly in the Hyde area so it was it felt like a real uh, investigation job and it was all on microfiche and you would be trolling through um, old copies of the local paper um, and then once you'd found somebody a woman say in her 70s um, it said she died at home suddenly and then you would have to go to the registry office, pull the death certificate, find the relatives, go to the address, um, and say, was Dr. Shipman her doctor? Um, and that's how, in the end, um, a lot of the national press got their backgrounds. Because So it was a very um, time-consuming process. Um, and it must also have been like doubly traumatic for some of the people that you approached to find out that they were the, the their mother had been had been killed by this man. Well, yeah, I mean, um, quite a lot of them had already been approached by the police, but because they weren't part of that fifteen cohort, um, they were more willing to talk um, because often they wanted their relative to be part of the court case because they felt that he Shipman was getting off with the death of their or the murder of their um, uh, grandma or mother or. Um, so that, um, yes, it, uh, and I think maybe it was, it, it was very tragic, but unlike Dunblane, where you were talking about five-year-old kids, people were more measured. People, you know, uh, they had had a life, a lot of these victims. Um, 
And I've personally found it easier to deal with than I did Dunblane, which was a horrendous story. And... Um, very difficult to come to terms with and very difficult to cover. Um, in fact, all the rules went out of the window with Dunblane. So th the, um, a lot of newspapers, a lot of journalists made a decision not to directly door knock relatives of the children involved, but to try and go in via a neighbour or a friend or because it was so um, awful. Um, we didn't want to add to any of their grief and you really did feel like you were walking on broken glass for the five days that we were there and at the end of five days and normally with a story like Dunblane where you've got 16 five-year-olds and their teacher shot dead in such horrific circumstances you would think the press would be there for weeks but um, we agreed um, to leave after five days and when the funeral started on the Monday um, it, the, the, the shootings happened on the Wednesday morning. On the Monday, the first funeral happened and the press moved out en masse, leaving only the press association who covered all the funerals for everybody. And um, we all agreed to that um, at the request of the, of the town. Um, and there, there was a feeling that um, everything changed a bit at Dunblane, that, you know, we... Um, we were desperate not to, um, not to upset any anybody any further than they already had been. So, in that light, I know there was there was some criticism of of the media and the approaches that were made to the that were made to the families um, after the arena bombing, and then there was the the whole Eggington inquiry into that, which made recommendations that included that idea that the the, the media, the news media, should kind of reach a collective decision about approaches to individual families, for example, and then they should sort of pool that resource. Or, or, and is, is that, do you, think, do you think the journalists are, and editors are having to relearn these best approaches every time? Do, is, there a, is there a way that people can kind of not have to go back and restart the process and kind of keep this as a kind of collective memory, do you think? I think... Um there are occasions. There are occasions when I've been asked to go um, and knock a door for a number of papers together, and that's generally when individual reporters have spoken to each other and thought, "We don't. This is sensitive. We don't want this person to have to relive it too many times. Why don't we just send Jan? A, because I'm a woman, <laughs> and B, because um, she can do it for three or four different papers, and it, it's it's." easier for the family if they're going to talk of course they may not they may not talk um the arena um what happened after the arena bombings um clearly there were some people who were very upset by the approaches that um uh, that were made i think in the chaos of a big news event like that it's very difficult sometimes for news organisations to sit down and say, oh, we'll liaise with this paper and that paper and all do it together. Um, and as a result, of course, yeah, you, people do get approached time and time again. And actually, they aren't being harassed by one individual journalist, but because they've got maybe 12 or 13, 
individual journalists going once, that's for them is harassment. So we might not individually feel that we've harassed anybody, and we haven't. But the sense that the victim, the victim's family comes away with is that they've been monstered by the press as an, uh, as an organisation. Um, I do think that there was mention made of a, um, uh, a note, I think, pushed under somebody's door in a, uh, put in a biscuit barrel or something. I'm, I'm always a bit... No name was ever associated with that. And I do think sometimes tales go round that aren't substantiated about terrible things the press have done. And, and if they have, then quite rightly, they should be brought to book. But um, there was never... I mean, if somebody had, had put a note like that, it, there would be a f name and a phone number on it. Um, so I am dubious about some of the claims that were, that were made. And I think sometimes it's somebody saying something to somebody else, and it's Chinese whispers. And it, it, in the end, it sort of becomes fact um, without any evidence, and, I, and that's a shame. Yeah, yeah. So just to, that you always, I guess, you always have to take an individual approach because it's always an individual family that you are approaching. So what would be, for, for the students, what would be your kind of best tips about how to handle something like this when you're asked by an editor to go off and, and approach a bereaved family like that? Okay, I would say never believe your brief. Check it yourself because I have been told in the past that I'm going to knock the door of somebody who's, uh, missing believed dead and um, when I looked it up it turned out that actually there were no names of any dead having been released I have um, a sort of standard phrase I use um, in a lot of situations where if I turn up at somebody's door I will say I understand your sister brother niece or may have been caught up in this event you don't want to be the bearer of bad news anyway but certainly if it's wrong you don't want to be the bearer of that news um, so I think you have to formulate a script in your head as to what you're going to say when you arrive um, I think you also have to be empathetic you have to realize that however much you don't want to be there what you're doing is nothing like what they're going through um, if they want to talk that's great, and you'll be invited in. If they don't want to talk, I say thank you. I offer to leave my card. Um, if they won't take my card, then that's fine too, um, and I leave. And I wouldn't go back, as a rule. Okay. Well, look, um, that, that hopefully that's good advice for the students and something to, to work on. And, and I mean, I think in general, would you say, is it, is it a job that young journalists in particular should be scared of? No, they shouldn't be scared of it. I think they, um, they should realise that they're providing, uh, that they're facilitating um, bereaved families uh, allowing them to talk. I mean, it, it is slightly different these days because obviously when, when I started, it was the only way to leave a tribute. Now people can do it themselves through Facebook and through social media. Um, having said that, there's still something um, more thorough, I suppose, about having sat down and spoken to a journalist and uh, released pictures and... Um, um, and I know, <clears throat> I know that people do it 
online and, and post their own tributes and post their own photographs, and they perhaps feel that they take control um, that way. Um, I remember my, my cousin actually died very tragically at 25, um, and I remember my aunt being thrilled when the local paper came round to do a tribute on her. Um, you know, but people can say, um, if you knock on their door, actually, yes, do come in. They might not be on social media. It might not be something that they were able to do. Other people could say, actually, I've already done a tribute and refer you to the Facebook page or, or whatever. Um, but I do think that uh, um, it, it's, it would be a shame if, it, if we didn't knock doors and ask people. I mean, that, that sometimes the police will put out um, an email saying, um, please do not approach the family. Um, and a colleague of mine recently um, was actually interviewing the family when that email arrived because the family very much wanted to talk um, and were quite critical of the police. So I do think you have to be a bit careful about it being too managed because there are times when people who are going to be criticised won't want certain people to talk. And, um, and also people have different approaches. Uh, certain people will only want to talk to certain newspapers. If it's all um, combined and the Mail and the Guardian and the Times and the Telegraph all work together, then um, you get less of a variety in, in our news, um, which would be unfortunate. Well, Jan, thanks very much indeed for coming on to talk about that. I hope it has been useful for the students and maybe um, help soften their, their attitude towards it. And, and it can be, as you say, in, in lots of cases, it can actually be a, a, an introduction to greater depth to a story and introduction to a community and so on. So uh, for the moment, Jan Disley, thanks very much indeed for coming on Bang to Rights. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for having me. So thanks again to Jan for coming in uh, to speak to our students here at MMU and of course thanks for coming on the podcast. I'll put some links in the show notes to some of Jan's recent work and you can have a look for yourself. Um, Dawn, we've all got stories like those that Jan's just been, been telling us. What's, what's your first experience? I do remember my very first one, which is when I worked at the North Wales Weekly News uh, a good while ago now. And I actually got a phone call from someone in my family who had seen a police car outside someone's house up the road. So again... It's this whole idea of the people you know are really good contacts for stories. Um, they told me that there was a police car and an ambulance outside a house up the road. And the rumour was that um, a retired general major that lived in the village um, had died, but there was no clue as to what had happened. So this wasn't quite a death knock. I actually went at the time. By the time I got to um, this house, um, the ambulance and the police had gone away and I actually knocked on the door to find out what was going on uh, and a woman came to the door obviously quite distressed I was very young and green and just started on the newspaper I knew my editor was waiting back in the newsroom for a scoop um, I spoke to the woman she told me that somebody had actually taken their own life in the house so it was quite a dramatic um, story involving a shotgun uh, so quite a big and dramatic story got back on the bus actually uh, back to, back to the newsroom um, and filed the story, and it was on the front page of the paper. Obviously, there are a lot of ethical issues in that kind of story. Um, I'm not sure, actually, when I think about it now, that story should have been published on the front page. Uh, but again, um, I just had that um, idea that I had to approach uh, these people. I think I was probably quite naive and quite nervous. 
perhaps the woman who came to the door felt sorry for me, but, but gave me an interview, yeah. So um, it's one of those very difficult things you have to do with it's, journalists. It's always difficult, mm. even with lots and lots of experience. Mm. It ne it's never easy, yeah. is it, Dave? I think, you know, in my experience, most people are generally open to, if you are, the way you introduce yourself, explain who you are, uh, I would say, Mike, and I've done a lot of death knocks. Uh, so it could be death knocks in, t in terms of ringing people up just to say, can I come up? You know, it might be that kind of death knock in, in a way. Um, the majority have been okay. And I found the majority of people want to speak to you and use it as some kind of emotional release. Um, I've had phones put down on me. And in fact, I was saying to the students the week, always introduce yourself. Because the one time I didn't, and I just I was in my suit and I went to knock on the door and I said, I've come about Julie or whoever it was. They let me in. And I thought, well, that's interesting. They must have known I was coming. And we started to have this interview. And within a few minutes, they, they stopped and said, you are the police, aren't you? At which point I said, oh, no. Gosh. And I was told in no uncertain terms to leave to this leave. instant. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I would say, you know, um, it's a bit of a rite of passage and you don't know what the reaction is. But in my experience, you know, um, it's good journalistic experience yes. and because it, it helps you to overcome that emotional and psychological barrier of I've got to speak to somebody I don't know about a hugely personal thing mm. and I don't know how they're going to react. And I can only be myself and use my professional manner. Yeah. And yeah. it is very difficult. But most people, I, I think, have uh, yeah. not had a huge I mean, it's the, the, In some ways, mm. the usual sort of rules, you know, you have to be curt courteous and yes. respectful mm. and you have yeah. to listen. And those, yeah. those are always important things. To Show some and, and I think people do respond, on the whole, yes. people do respond to that. Yeah. But imagining that people are not going to talk to you and you're going to get slammed doors, yes. uh, that isn't the case. And I think it's quite yeah. surprising when you start mm. off that people are willing to talk. I mean, I've no, I know, I know one reporter who, who said to me years ago, I said, how did the death not go? And he said, oh, I didn't knock on the door. I just sat in the car and waited for half an hour and came back to the office because I couldn't do it. <laughs> and and uh, I, I told the editor that and I went, oh, that's interesting. Um, so some people are not, mm. even as working journalists, not happy to do that. I think that was a shocking uh, well, as, yeah. as you heard, Jan <laughs> said she was all ready to crash the car and use that as an excuse yeah. for not doing the first one. So, yeah. So, yeah, so, I mean, it's, yeah. So, so hopefully, hopefully students listening mm. to this will, will to, to all of mm. our experience mm. and to Jan's in particular, will will know that it is something that you have to learn, yeah. but the correct approach means that you yeah. you hopefully will be able to yeah. get through the first one. And on the other hand, you know, don't just keep going back and hassling people. Yes. You know, yeah. It's patently yeah. obvious, but yeah. I think some people... It's yeah. all rules. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, well, thanks both of you for, for that. Um, Dave, before we wrap up for this week, anything coming up uh, for the students? Anything coming up on Northern Quota that people should be looking out for? Um, well, we had we went to an inquest last week. We took the students, and it was a really interesting one for them, and I think they really enjoyed it. it produced some good copy from that. Coming up next week, we've got um, looking at online media law, hyperlinking, embedding, all the dangers that you can, you can come up against, uh, readers' comments, Content, all that kind of stuff. NQ, usual phantasmagoria of superb stories. Yeah, we got a, a new video that uh, we produced uh, as a uh, in a, a news conference with the second yes. years, and that video's gone up with some people from the the, the national university competition. Some of the winners uh, yeah. from from MMU, some of our sports. Yeah, there's a lot of good that. sports stuff coming on. Actually, a lot of good we're stuff really on. blessed yeah. with uh, MMU sports and some great stuff coming out of the sports journalism unit. So those guys are doing fantastic work. Brilliant. Yeah.
So we'll be back uh, next week with some more of that. And remember, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on Stitcher, and we'll drop straight onto your podcast feed. Or you can pick us up on the Northern Quota SoundCloud feed, and that's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. That is it for this week. Remember to tweet us at RightsBang if there are issues from your reading or from your lectures you'd like us to cover in any future editions. In the meantime, we have been Bang to Rights. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, please. And thanks, Don. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon. <laughs>